0: the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 23rd of June with me, Ian Welsh. At Innovation Forum's recent spring conferences on the future of food and on climate action and scope 3 supply chain emissions, I was struck by the number of emerging solutions that can really help companies with the how of addressing their impacts on carbon and other environmental challenges. Coming up is an interview with Marco Albani, CEO and co-founder of Chloris Geospatial, a company that's developed some really interesting remote sensing technology. First though, it's time for a quick roundup of some sustainable business news. Everyone's been talking about the Sustainable Development Goals for some time But at the halfway point between their establishment in 2015 and their aspirational end date of 2030, what progress has been made towards achieving them? Not enough, according to a new report from the UN Sustainable Development Solutions Network, which says that progress has been static on the SDGs for the past three years. The period 2015-2019 to saw some progress on the goals, but the pandemic years and the outbreak of war in Ukraine is blamed for the stalling of improvements in the past few years. The SDSN report says that at current progress, none of the SDGs will be achieved by 2030, and that we are only on track for around 20% of the goal's underlying targets to be met. While the Covid-19 pandemic and the Ukraine war can be blamed at least in part for the slow progress since 2019, the report also points out that both challenges have demonstrated the capability of high-income countries to mobilise vast resources quickly. However, no G20 country currently has sufficient government-level commitment and policy in place to meet the Paris Agreement objectives. Delegates at the UN Climate Conference in Bonn, which concluded on the 16th of June and is the precursor to the COP28 meeting in the United Arab Emirates in November, were also generally frustrated at the lack of progress. For much of the two-week meeting there were disputes over agenda items particularly in the mitigation work program that was agreed at the cop 27 meetings in glasgow and which has the purpose of speeding up cuts in the emissions in the period up to 2030. there was no agreement on where we'd host the santiago network on loss and damage though there was some progress on operationalizing how to help vulnerable communities deal with climate change impacts there were further talks on establishing a fund for loss and damage and the discussions will continue at cop 28 in november North to South investment is a common theme. A new report from the International Energy Agency and the International Finance Corporation says that the funds invested in clean energy in developing economies needs to triple to $2.8 trillion in the next 10 years. The investment is necessary to meet UN targets on access to green and affordable energy while aligning with the Paris Climate Change Agreement's goals. The new report calls for significantly greater private sector finance and recommends that public sector funds are best invested via a blended finance approach to help remove some of the risks that are a cause of private sector reluctance to invest. In addition, funds will need to be invested to kickstart technology that is currently not cost competitive in many parts of the world, including large-scale energy storage projects, green hydrogen. The report also highlights the continued fossil fuel subsidies that exist around the world that distort energy supply markets. GBS, the world's largest meatpacking business, has had to pull some advertising in the US over claims of greenwashing. The company had appealed to the US advertising watchdog saying that including detail of its aspirational targets of achieving a net zero position by 2040 was acceptable following a previous decision from the US National Advertising Division that the aspirations were confusing for consumers as there was no guarantee they would be achieved as the company is only in the exploratory phase of its efforts. The appeal decision noted that a reasonable consumer would interpret GBS's claims to mean that the company is already acting towards specific objectives and measurable outcomes that would enable its operations to have net-zero impact by 2040. GBS disagrees with the findings but has pulled advertising featuring the aspirations. A few days ago I spoke with Marco Albani, CEO and co-founder of Chloris Geospatial. We talked about how the remote sensing sector is developing and what the latest technology can do to help companies keen to get to grips with carbon and other impacts. Let's start with a bit of background context of Chloris Geospatial. Why was the business established and what are your aims? Alessandro
1: Baccini and myself have been working in the space around the whole issue of how do we actually change the way we use land to store more carbon and how do we get more nature conservation and so on. And one thing that I had found in, in my work was that actually In many cases, we didn't really know what was going on, that the data was a niche. And of course, things were improving. We had Global Forest Watch coming out on the scene. And so we're learning a lot of things. But it seemed to me that there was a lot of space and need for better understanding, actually, on the impact that all these activities were having on the actual carbon storage in vegetation. And Alessandro had been working on that for 20 years as a scientist that had developed very interesting technology using remote sensing data, to directly estimate the storage of carbon in vegetation, woody vegetation in forests. Kind of around the time where COVID was happening and everything was in turmoil, we got talking about turning this into an activity, changing our lives and starting this business together. And then we groped in Mark Friedel, was a professor at Boston University, and Giulio Boccoletti used to be chief strategy officer at TNC to help us, and we started this company. The idea was really to use the science that Alessandro had been working on, but also beyond that, so what others are also doing, to produce a stream of data on the state of natural capital that would be produced at the scale and the speed of business and actually usable by business. As business was starting to take responsibility and try to understand its impact on nature and vegetation and natural capital, it needs actually an accounting system in its measurement. And so we thought that we could do like this kind of Bloomberg for nature, I think, was one of the early ideas that we had when we started Chloris. So how do we measure natural capital in a way that is reliable, is scalable, it's fast, and it really gets to the bottom of what people are trying to do and and trying to understand their impact on
0: There's a definite sense, I think, that businesses with impacts on ecosystems and natural capital are recognising those impacts and the need for them to take a more nature-positive approach. How, in general, then, is technology adapting to help them?
1: I think what we're seeing right now is two things. On one hand, we have a deployment of a variety of new and different sensors. That are coming online, be they spaceborne, landborne, airborne sensors, and so on. On the other, we have a growing investment in creating ways to use these sensors to create reliable data that can be deployed at scales so over over very large areas, because the size of the problem is global, and also over long periods of time, so that we can actually have a view of what's happening, what the baselines are, how things are changing in a way that is reliable and trustworthy. Over many areas. I like to think that we're at the forefront of that. We just released our 20 year, 22 years actually, uh, above ground biomass stock and change data product. Of course, there are others working in this space. It's tough because as sensors improve, you don't know what's going on in the past necessarily. You can't send them back in time. So, yes, new sensors are helpful because they allow us to see things that we couldn't see before, but we have a lot of information to mine from the old sensors that can also give us a sense of how things have been happening in the past. It's also a market that has largely been financed by venture capital, and venture capital is going through some very difficult times. There's been really a euphoria of climate tech followed now by a period of some deep problems and the Epidome was the Silicon Valley Bank collapse or crisis that actually put a lot of companies operating in this space in a difficult position until the federal government stepped in. But really, we're seeing VC money less and less available. And so there is a big push towards these companies to be profitable now, or at least to have tighter economics in a space in which buyers of the services are also feeling economic pressure and at the same time we have seen this big backlash on voluntary carbon markets so it's not an easy time to be doing this but at the same time the signal is clear that there's something that we need to do that the the world needs and that we need to continue to find ways of doing it i have a long-term optimistic view of this market and the technology that is coming into this market so not just ours but also of others i have a sense that in the short term it is choppy and i think it's very important that people are thoughtful about how they deploy resources and capital
0: you mentioned the volatile carbon markets just now it strikes me that this sort of technology could be very useful for those markets in really bringing scale and integrity is that an area that you think is going to develop
1: yeah, I think that it's an area where today the voluntary carbon markets by and large still operates, notwithstanding all the investment there has been in climate tech companies, and we've seen the rise of the carbon raters, we've seen a lot of investment in youth at digital MRV companies, but the market itself still operates fundamentally on 1990s technology. When we actually look at the MRV, I'm talking about forest carbon here. I'm not talking about the other elements of it. But the one we look at, which is fundamentally the modifying the trajectory of emissions or sequestration in vegetation. A lot of the methodologies that have been designed with you know, safe and trusted, if you want, technology, technological approaches where there's very little space for automation. There's very little space still for AI or machine learning to play a role where we're still very much relying on emission factors, land use, land cover change. Now, people have been doing land use land cover change for remote sensing for 40 years. And there is a big shift of which we are part towards direct estimation of carbon storage. As there is shift, for example, of direct estimation of emission from methane through satellites and so on, there's a lot of new technologies developing. The methodologies need to mature and incorporate those approaches. Even some of the new methodologies still, for example, require human interpretation of images in order to detect the deforestation, which is something that obviously at very large scale, it's best done using artificial intelligence or convolution neural networks or all sorts of big data technology rather than having somebody popping up images on the screen. Yes, it's a forest, No, it's not a forest, and so on, like little dots. But the market is still doing that. There's been a lot of pressure I think probably your listener know, on avoided deforestation, especially in how a baselines have been set, that have created this drop in confidence in the market. There's been a shift towards removals, especially towards afforestation and reforestation. I think the pendulum will swing. I think we'll realize that afforestation and reforestation is not something that we shouldn't do. Ecosystem restoration is important. Restoration is important, but it's plagued by a number of other issues that are currently underappreciated, I think, by some market participants. Issues that have to do with equity of land access, of true additionality, of permanence, of what is done. And to some extent, there is this perception that removals and so reforestation projects are better than avoided deforestation projects. I would say that if you can see what the atmosphere sees, if you have good, reliable Understanding and estimation of carbon dynamics on land—they are not better necessarily. They can be, but you can have better afforestation projects than avoided deforestation project. You can have better avoided deforestation project or avoided degradation project because we know that degradation is a big component of the emissions that are coming from land use practices. Then you have a forestation reforestation projects. And so I think what we really need is a maturing of the methodologies alongside the technology and catching up with the technological stack without being overly optimistic about what the technology can do. I mean, obviously, we want to validate and verify that technology can deliver what it's promising when we look about the environmental integrity and the digital MRV. Today we start to have the ability to do that at very large scale. We were just able to run an entire state, fundamentally in a matter of hours, entire Brazilian state, so a million of hectares in a matter of hours, and do twenty years above ground biomass stock and change. So this is the speed that this now can happen, which through the building of dedicated cloud-based computing software and so on, something that ten years ago, or even five years ago, or even two years ago, probably was not possible was a lot harder to do. And this is now possible at operational scale with data that has the resolution that it's providing the same kind of insight that you provide for jurisdictional-based accounting with the same resolution that you would use for project-based accounting so that if you're doing nesting between jurisdiction and projects, you're actually using the same approach at the two levels for measuring and you don't have a measuring mismatch. I think it's an exciting time
0: Let's talk a bit about the business case here for all of this. How is the business case evolving? You're talking about all these different, clearly incentives are very, very important for different parts of the value chain, but how are you seeing the business case for conservation of nature evolving?
1: In the short term, of course, we're seeing this pressure of the economic spacing we're in today. At the same time, it's, becoming incredibly evident that continued exploitation of national capital is not something that we can continue to do, that we're in the face of the outcomes and the impacts of climate change, biodiversity loss. They're happening today. They're happening in serious ways. And so I think the macroeconomic and the overarching policy rationale for these interventions is becoming stronger and stronger every day. There is a raising in awareness and interest from government and business and civil society, but increasingly also from business into the issue of the conservation of nature, the restoration of nature. So we don't necessarily are stuck in a carbon world only anymore, although carbon is something that it's easier to measure and it's more fungible because a ton of carbon is a ton of carbon is a ton of carbon to a certain degree, but definitely more than like whatever of biodiversity is right? You can't swap pangolins for uh, nematodes. It doesn't have the same fungibility. The business case is getting stronger. At the same time, we're still struggling to figure out how to create the right incentive system. There's been a long conversation about finance for nature and how do we finance protection and restoration of biodiversity. So there is an interesting increase of funds and initiatives to do that. But where the rubber hits the road, where basically people then are asked to do work, and so how do you pay for that work? I think people are still struggling to find the finance that they want in a number of cases. And so the willingness to pay for the information is not very high. This is something that if you work with remote sensing, it's very, very clear because today, especially with the new sensors, especially the high-resolution imagery, which is fundamentally priced on the willingness to pay of the defense industry, we're basically talking about two very, very different use cases with very, very different willingness to pay, and so often struggling to actually deploy that technology into the nature analytics space. There's a lot of emerging models that are different. So the merging of carbon and biodiversity, the, the underlying business case is strong, and the growth is going to continue. It is going to be choppy, right? Right. There's a lot of decisions that are policy-based and it will cause starts and stops. In the EU deforestation law, it's a big one on deforestation monitoring, clearly, but we'll have to see how that plays out. The GAG accounting, science-based targets for nature, disclosure requirements, and so on. All those things are going into the right direction to the extent where immediately they will cause like a nice, growth of this market. That's not what is happening, at least from where we're sitting, that's not what we're seeing.
0: I wanted to ask about some of your thoughts on changing policy and regulation. What do you think is helpful in terms of the right sort of regulation? I mean, you've touched on the EU due diligence requirements around uh, deforestation. Is it helpful, as ever, I guess, law of unintended consequences, is it always in play?
1: Unintended consequences are probably always in play. And I think that some of the issues that they have are probably more to do with the way things will work for the agricultural sector and uh, for smallholder farmers and the inclusion of smallholder farmer in sustainability processes and the risk of creating two-speed markets and so on. These are all issues that clearly exist and they'll need to be addressed. I'll speak maybe to the angle of somebody who's actually trying to provide the market with data. And I think that The work that needs to be done around standardizing and clarifying how do you actually collect and report the information about what you're trying to measure, it's an important piece of this. It's going to take time and work to create the right frameworks, especially frameworks that don't get stuck, don't crystallize the reporting technology at the point in time and then become obsolete. But something that allows everybody to participate with the capacity that they have today, but with the ratcheting approach to improving the reporting as the capabilities, the technological capabilities increase, and also the cost drops. I mean, one of the things that we know is that this cannot be unbearably burdensome, and it's problematic if it gets all pushed on producers, especially for the smallest producers. There are scale effects if you're building systems to automatically, for example, in use remote sensing information or other sources of data, you'd need a certain scale for these things to actually really operate in an effective, reliable manner at a price point that can be carried by the market. And so coordination between players and clear signals to market participants like us of where are you going and how can we serve you with something that is effective is going to be very helpful.
0: Yes, I guess, as ever, clarity is king in all these matters. Let's talk a bit about carbon accounting. How is best practice understanding of carbon accounting developing? And why, in particular, is being able to measure both carbon gains and reductions important?
1: Yeah, this is critical because when we look at terrestrial carbon, especially forest carbon, you know, we come from a world in which we fundamentally measured changes in forest area and not changes in carbon storage. And then we applied an emission factor to changes in forest area that has a series of limitations in in actually having reliable carbon accounting. One is that, of course, it doesn't allow you to measure anything that doesn't change the forest area. And so remaining forest can change its carbon stock by degradation, by growth, but that doesn't get captured. And the other thing is that these processes, the processes of Changes in forest cover and forest area are, are not random and they won't hit different kind of forests with different level of carbon storage randomly. So technology now allows us to measure directly changes in carbon store in vegetation, allows us to map carbon storage in vegetation with, you know, a reasonable accuracy and accuracy that can continuously improve. This is something that we're seeing now, for example, with the prevalence of forest fires how the earth system is basically reacting to the changes that are happening in the climate and how natural disturbance, human-induced disturbance is actually moving large masses of carbon from terrestrial pools to the atmosphere and being able to keep track of that and all the processes that are happening there is going to be increasingly important. In the end, what matters is what happens to the atmosphere as far as carbon accounting goes. The way the carbon is stored and whether we are preserving, for example, the highest carbon stocks, which also often have the highest biodiversity value, also matters. Measuring carbon storage and changes in carbon storage more accurately, I think, will also allow us to be better at understanding the biodiversity co-benefits or the potential trade-offs between the carbon lever and the biodiversity lever when designing efforts in changing the trajectory of landscapes.
0: Do you think then that getting understanding of carbon, is that the best proxy for biodiversity impact? Are there other ways or better ways to account for biodiversity?
1: I think that there are interesting other ways to account for biodiversity. Uh, I think carbon storage and carbon density. It's a very interesting piece of information. It's biomass. The more biomass generally means that there is more structural diversity. It means that more species might be able to sustain themselves. The ecosystem is more productive. Especially the trajectory of the biomass change is quite insightful. It's not the only one. We have eDNA, for example, for biodiversity monitoring structural diversity, horizontal in the landscape, assessing whether, for example, corridors are maintained, minimum size of certain habitats for species. And in the end, individual species tracking and monitoring might be what we need. I mean, this is where we're going into this whole complexity of how do you measure and monitor biodiversity, because it's not just one thing. I mean, it's a synthetic concept, but depending where you are, And what you're concerned about, your concern might be on some specific subset of the species that you're tracking. I mean, I'm not a biodiversity expert. It seems to me that what the biomass monitoring provides, it's an important piece of the puzzle that can complement other approaches in a more holistic view of what's happening in the landscapes. But it definitely has a lot of potential.
0: You mentioned eDNA. Could you just outline what that is, please?
1: These are technologies where fundamentally the environment is sample for presence of DNA of certain species. There are companies like Nature NatureMetrics that, for example, have advanced these technologies. And so there is a variety of approaches and technical innovation that is happening around these issues. And that it's a very interesting one if you're interested in very rare stuff that it's very hard to see otherwise directly. I mean, people used to put photo traps or try to detect presence by sampling. That's an approach that basically allows for finding the traces of the DNA of a certain species in the environment. But I mean, again, I'm not an expert in this. What I think it is is that something that complement, goes at this issue from a very, very different way that we do because, and everybody else works like us. So basically fundamentally mapping vegetation, mapping trees, mapping biomass, or land cover types, and gives you a sense of the extent and dimension and complexity and interaction of different ecosystems versus one that where basically you're really starting to detect the presence of absence of specific species. Hyperspectral remote sensing is very interesting. There's a number of hyperspectral sensors and constellation that are being planned or launched. And these are satellites, optical satellites that slice the light in finer and finer bands so that you're now able to see things in many, many more colors than, than what we're able to see with the human eye. And that allows to differentiate, for example, be- between different species of trees and so allow you to map a species abundance of trees in a way that you're normally not able to with multispectral scanners, which are the most common optical scanners. So those are other opportunities that are coming online. What these new sensors don't have is, is of course, the yet, is the fact that they can't go back, right? What we're trying to do, creating reliable baselines, means also reconstructing the past. That's an important piece of work, and that's where we have had Earth observation satellites of various types operating for many many years now many decades i mean the last mission of nasa has been operating since the 1970s so we do have an extensive archive of information and being able to mine that archive and use it effectively to reconstruct the trajectory of uh, the ecosystems we're interested in is incredibly helpful
0: time travel aside then what other technology advancements do you see coming up
1: What I see is that the distribution of computing has made this ability to process data at very large scale, very fast, increasingly cost-effectively as a critical contribution to this. I see the democratization of those capabilities, the fact that we're going to be able to put a series of what today are complex remote sensing tasks so let's say mapping biomass, mapping canopy height, mapping forest types, forest cover change, deforestation, and so on, that is done only in certain labs with people would have highly specialized to put these workflows in the hands of companies, but especially also in the hands of governments everywhere, and being able to do that with much more reliably, effectively, and timely It's a major revolution, which means that we'll actually have that abundance of insight and so transparency of what's going on that so far we have been talking about, but it's really not super clear. I mean, this is the reason why we've had this emergence of carbon credit rating companies because, you know, what's under the hood there? And it's not that straightforward. And it still isn't, right? It's still a complex business, like to actually understand what is going on not just to look at a picture on Google Earth, but to actually understand what's going on in time, it still takes a lot of work. The advances in analytics and in parallel computing are going to put this in the hands of more and more people so that they can actually do their own analysis. And this is an exciting evolution because it means that we will be able to have different layers of digital monitoring and digital reporting of what's happening in in landscapes, in supply sheds, and so on, in a way that we didn't have before.
0: It certainly is an exciting time, and it's you know it's great to see so many solutions emerging. Uh, companies are desperate for solutions, but it's like, interesting to see them as they come down the line. Let's come back and talk about what's going to be coming down the line next time, perhaps. But for now, Marco Albani from Cloris New Spatial, thanks very much indeed. Thank you, Ian. The Innovation Forum website is, as ever, the place to go for all the usual analysis and interviews. Do look out for the latest column from business and climate change writer Mike Scott, this time addressing the potential for insect-based protein. We'll be back on Monday with our regular weekly briefing, but that's it for now. I've been in Welsh, and until next time, goodbye.